here, the Apostle Paul exhorts us to receive one another, or to receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received them both. Who are we, who are you, to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. Father, we thank you for your word today, and we ask that you would instruct and teach us, Lord. Help us to see in the text that's before us how we are to live in a way that is both glorifying to you, but also, Lord, in a way that is a witness of your grace. And so, God, we pray for your strength by your spirit, for as we've seen in the text here over the last several weeks, these things are things that we cannot do without your empowering by your spirit. We thank you, God, that we are the temple of your spirit, that you, Holy Spirit, give us the ability to do those things that we cannot do, even to be witnesses of of your grace, God. So, God, speak to us. Transform us by the renewing of our minds that we would be able to display your perfect and holy will in this world. We ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people agreed saying, Amen. 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 You can be seated. How many of you have recognized in your walk with the Lord and your time following Him that religion is quite a bit easier than walking by faith? It is much easier to have a list of do's and don'ts or a list of things that are safe and those things that are out than it is to follow God by faith, but that's what the walk of the Christian is. We walk by faith and not by sight. We walk being led by the Spirit of God and by the grace of God. Knowing that, we recognize that there are many things that will come before us in this life and in this walk and following the Lord that are not expressly spoken of in the Scriptures. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that in any way the Scriptures are deficient. They're not. Everything that we need to know about God's character and nature and his will and salvation has been revealed to us. The the scriptures are comprehensive in what they reveal as God intended them to be, but we know that there are certain things that we face in this life that the Bible doesn't speak about. So there are what might be called gray areas, things that we will face that don't have a very clear safe or out marked upon them. The question is, how do we deal with those things? How do we walk there in the middle? How do we confront those things that might be considered gray areas, those areas where the Bible might be silent? Well, Paul, in this passage here, in Romans chapter 14, is going to be talking about that very issue. Verse 1, he says, Receive one who is weak in the faith. Receive one who is weak in the faith. Now, without reading beyond verse 1, we can imagine a number of different things that might classify someone as weak in their faith. We might come up with things like, well, those who are easily snared by temptation, who easily stumble into sin, that person might be classified as weak in their faith. Or, or maybe those that don't have a firm grasp on doctrine, they might be classified as weak in their faith. Or perhaps that person who uh, you know, allows certain liberties in their lives and, and there's other people who don't, maybe one of them is considered to be weak in their faith. 
And while such things may, in fact, be a reason to classify someone as weak in their faith, and we will see in just a moment, Paul's going to identify some very clear teaching about what constitutes a person's weakness in the faith, we need to at least recognize some initial points here in verse 1 before we even step into the rest of the text. So if you're taking notes, the first thing we see here in verse 1 is that there are people who are weak in their faith. Now, that may not seem like a very big point, but it's a point nonetheless. There are people in the church that are weak in their faith. The Bible describes that every single Christian, when they first become believers and followers of God, we're called babes in Christ. We're newborn babies, if you will, in the faith. You remember there in John chapter 3, a man, a very religious man, came to Jesus by night, and he said, Jesus said to him, you must be born again to come into the kingdom of God. And so every single Christian, every single person who becomes a Christian, they are born again into a new life. And when they're born again into that new life, they are babes in Christ. Now, the unfortunate fact is that some people have been a part of the body of Christ, a part of a church for maybe 10 or 20 or 30 years, and yet they still, because of their conduct and the way in which they live, could be classified as an infant in their faith. Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth, if you've ever read through the book of Acts, as we've been studying through it here at the church and gone through the book of books of 1 and 2 Corinthians, you know that the church at Corinth had all kinds of problems. And in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, at verse 1, Paul says to the church there in Corinth, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as carnal and as babes in Christ. Even though they had been followers of the Lord for a period of time, several years by the time that Paul wrote that letter, he says, I can't write to you as spiritual because you're carnal. You're immature in your understanding and your application of the faith and the teachings of Christ. Now, it's not necessarily a, an abnormal thing for some to, someone to be at, you know, immature in their, their faith and their application of the things of the Scriptures because they may not know them, they haven't been under good teaching, whatever it may be, but we are not to stay in that place. The author of the book of Hebrews, he, he writes to the Hebrew Christians, that is people who came out of Judaism to follow Jesus as the Messiah, and he says there in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, the author of the book of Hebrews, he says, by this time you should be teaching other people, and yet you need that someone teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. You've come to need milk and not solid food. Well, what exactly is milk? He goes on, verse 13, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe, but solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So the author of the book of Hebrews says, you should be at a greater stage in your walk with the Lord, but you're not because you have not exercised yourself in the word of righteousness. The apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says to the church there, church as newborn babes desire the pure milk of God's word that you would grow thereby. You see, God's desire, he knows that every single one of us, when we begin to follow him, are babes in Christ. We don't have full comprehension of everything. When we become Christians and receive the spirit of God, we don't instantly, like the matrix, get plugged in and everything gets uploaded into our brain, although that might be nice, it's not reality. No, we need to grow by the pure milk of God's word. Although we do receive God as 
those that are little children, Jesus in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew, he says those who come into the kingdom, they come with childlike faith. Yes, we do come before God with childlike faith. We are exhorted to be imitators of God as dear children in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. We, but we are not to be children in our understanding and our comprehension of the things of God. We do not want to be as children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. But we do recognize, point number one and verse number one, there are people who are weak in the faith. Number two, if you're taking notes, spiritual strength and maturity are not requirements for church membership. Spiritual strength and maturity are not requirements for church membership from what Paul says here in this verse. He says, receive one who is weak in the faith. The third point is very simple. It's just like point two. Those that are weak in their faith are to be graciously received into fellowship. There is no prerequisite to be a part of the body of Christ in the church of God other than putting your faith in Christ and receiving him as Savior and Lord. You don't need to take an entrance exam to get into the body of Christ. How many of you are thankful for that? I didn't test well in high school. I'm glad there's no entrance exam. And so receive those who are weak in the faith. The word receive means to accept or grant access. It could also mean to lead by the hand. To lead by the hand. Paul's teaching is very clear. Those that are powerless those that are feeble, those that maybe even are sickly in their faith because they've had bad teaching or not good teaching, whatever it may be, they've not received what they need of the pure milk of God's word. Paul says to receive them into the fellowship. Uh, obviously, we're to receive them into the body of Christ so that they would be strengthened and nourished and grow into mature followers of Jesus Christ, disciples of Christ. And we know that a mature and, and healthy disciple is one who repro reproduces. They're sharing their faith with others and seeing others also come to the knowledge of the truth. So we don't want to receive people who are weak in the faith and then just allow them to stay in that position or to maybe lead others astray with their wrong doctrine or wrong understanding. No, we want to see that they would be built up. And we see there in 1 Peter chapter 2 that it's God's word that makes us strong. God's word that grows us in our understanding and comprehension of God's nature and God's will for us. And then God, by his spiritual power in us, his Holy Spirit in us, enables us to do the very things that we find in the scriptures, the exhortations that we've been seeing in this passage of Romans over the last several weeks. There in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, not only has God given to us his word, to lead us, to instruct us, to teach us, but God has also committed to us spiritual leaders. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, why has God given them to us, the body of Christ? For the equipping, the perfection, the maturing of the saints, the building up of the body of Christ. And then he goes on a few verses later and says, so that we would no longer be as children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. So God has given to us his word. He has given to us his Holy Spirit. He has given to us spiritual leaders within the body of Christ to disciple and train us and raise us up into maturity. But we still recognize that we're to receive those who are weak in the faith. But Paul goes on, verse one, he says, but not to disputes over doubtful things. Grant them access, 
Bring them in, lead them by the hand into maturity, but don't bring them in just unto debates or disputes over doubtful things. Now, the question comes, what exactly is a doubtful thing? Well, it's just those things I was talking about a few minutes ago, those things that are not expressly or clearly spoken to in the scriptures, the gray areas in the middle of the Christian faith, those things that don't have a clear do or a clear don't in the Bible, those would be called doubtful things. They are things that we would refer to as non-essentials or secondary issues. In reading and studying this 14th chapter of Romans, we need to repeatedly come back to the fact that Paul is not speaking here about clearly articulated doctrines in the faith. He's talking about those things that exist in the middle, where there's tension, where there's disagreement within the body of Christ, and yet those who disagree are still Christians. So Paul is not talking here about things like the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He is not talking about the second coming of Christ. He is not talking about inspiration of Scripture. He is not talking about the importance of repentance. He is not talking about the sinfulness of things like idolatry and murder adultery, immorality, and those things like it. He's not talking about those things that are clearly spoken to in the Bible. But what is he talking about when he talks about doubtful things? Well, I I suggest to you that maybe he's talking about whether or not Christians can dance. Now, I'm not going to speak to the fact of whether or not a Christian can dance, you know, because I can't. (laughs) But whether or not it would be forbidden for a Christian to dance or not. Did you know the Bible doesn't say anything about whether or not you're forbidden to dance or you should dance? Whether or not a believer is able to watch TV or go to certain movies? Whether or not certain musical instruments can be used in worship? Whether or not drinking or smoking are sin? Now, in saying that, I recognize that, yes, drunkenness is sin. But whether or not consuming alcohol and not being drunken, if that's sin... Whether or not smoking is sin. Now, the Bible does not say, thou shalt not smoke. I've not come across that one. However, of course, you could make the case that, well, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you could go down a long line of different things, but we need to recognize the Bible doesn't say that. Whether or not a Christian should worship on the Sabbath, that is Saturday, or on the Lord's Day, that is Sunday. Whether or not communion should be taken with grape juice or wine. The Bible doesn't expressly say that. Whether baptism should be by immersion or sprinkling. Some churches like ours say that we want to immerse people under the water. Other churches say, you know, we'll just kind of sprinkle them and they'll be, you know, we'll baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Bible doesn't expressly say, should it be by sprinkling or by immersion, whether or not there is a a rapture of the church seven years prior to the second coming, or if it happens in the middle or north of the end. You know, the Bible, there's a lot of leeway there and a lot of discussion, and so there are people who hold different opinions, different positions on these sort of things, and yet they're still Christians. They're still Christians. You know, there's a lot of good, solid Christian churches in our community here, and they are our brothers and sisters in the Lord, although they may not have the same view of worship that we do. They may use wine in communion. They may not have the same exact mode of baptism that we have here at our church, but they still believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. They still believe in the inspiration of Scripture, the incarnation of God here upon the earth. They still believe in those things that would be the essentials. 
And so, yes, those who are a part of our extended family attend churches like Bethel Baptist or Emmanuel Faith or Mission Hills Church. They're still a part of the body of Christ. Now, there are some others here in our community that call themselves Christians, but they hold different positions on the essentials. They don't believe that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is sufficient for our salvation. They believe that they still need to do good works to get into heaven. And so those that would be called Latter-day Saints, we would say there's a clear separation between us and them and they are not orthodox in their belief they're not but those who maybe hold a different position on whether or not a Christian can dance that's not an issue of whether or not they can be in fellowship of course we are to contend earnestly for the faith Jude tells us that in the end of the New Testament right before the book of Revelation We do aim to convince and rebuke and exhort with all patience and teaching those who do not believe the essentials of the faith, as Paul says in his letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. But as it relates to doubtful things, as it relates to non-essentials, we are to be determined to not dispute or debate over those things. But the sad reality is most churches debate and dispute over these issues. These issues in the middle, these are generally the things that cause denominational separations and doctrinal differences among churches. It's not normally about the resurrection. It's normally about things like, well, we don't like the way that church worships. We don't like that church's opinion about modes of baptism or whatever it may be. What do you mean Christians can't dance? I'm going to a church where they can dance. Maybe not me, though. These are sadly the areas where Christians normally divide. We've got to recognize and admit that the Bible does not speak to every issue that we could ever encounter in this life. It does speak to those issues that are important for the the revelation of who God is and what he calls us to. It is comprehensive on salvation and issues like that, but where the Bible is silent, we should endeavor to be silent also. We ought not to disfellowship people over such things. Like what? Well, look at verse 2 of Romans chapter 14. Paul gives us a couple of things. He uses a couple examples. For one believes that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Now, if you're a vegetarian, this is not necessarily saying that you're weak in your faith because you're a vegetarian. We need to understand the context in which this was written. We need to understand just what it is that Paul is saying. And I believe, it's my opinion, so you can take it for what it's worth, that Paul is speaking to a cultural issue within the early church. Now, we've already talked about this quite a bit. We talked about this when we began the book of Romans. We've talked about it as we've been going through it. We talked about it when we were going through 1 Corinthians because one of the earliest divisions and problems in the early church in the first century was a division between Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. And this division was a serious problem. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 15, they actually had a church-wide leadership council in the city of Jerusalem to deal with these issues about the Gentile and Jewish separation in the early church. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he had to repeatedly go back and discuss it in his letter to the Galatians. Here in the book of Romans, although Paul is writing a letter to a predominantly pagan, Gentile church, people who came out of paganism, not out of Judaism, there in the city of Rome, he recognizes that there was a temptation to divide along cultural lines within the early church. 
You see the Gentiles, they were a part of that church in Rome. They grew up in a social life where the entire society existed around the worship of deities like Zeus and Apollo and Bacchus and Diana and all these different Greek and Roman mythological characters and deities and they would go and worship at the temple of Apollo and they go and worship at all these different temples and one of the ways that they would worship would be in the offering of sacrifices and one of the ways that these temples existed and provided for their function was to take the meat of those sacrifices and sell it in the marketplace of the day at a reduced rate because it was meat that was sacrificed to an idol. And so you could go through the marketplace and there you would see some meat would be classified as clean, not sacrificed to an idol, if you will, kosher or halal. And then there would be other meat that would be classified as meat sacrificed to an idol. There's no real difference in the makeup of the meat. It's exactly the same. Probably the original animal was purchased at the same place and yet it's offered to an idol, therefore it's cheaper. And how many of you like a good buy? We're not foolish. We're gonna shop where it's cheap. Give me the coupon. What do you mean, it's sacrificed to an idol? Okay, and in the Gentile culture, that just was no big deal. They grew up with it. It's culturally normative. Now, for the Jewish believers, those who came from a Jewish background, who existed under the lens of the Levitical law, who existed under dietary restrictions and kosher rules, they lived a life where meat sacrificed to an idol was considered to be unclean spiritually and morally. They saw that consuming that meat, they believed that that would also make you unclean. So for the Jewish Christian, their entire cultural upbringing to the point that they became a Christian, it was drilled into their minds that you do not go near those things that are unclean. And so now you have this issue within the early church. It's a cultural, traditional issue. Does the Bible tell us that those meats sacrificed to idols are unclean morally or spiritually? Actually, quite the opposite. We know, Paul speaks to it in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, that those things sacrificed to idols, an idol is nothing, and there's no demonic presence attached to the meat. That meat is intrinsically fine. There's nothing unpure or unclean religiously about it, and yet in the mind of a Jewish individual, their conscience would be buffeted by the fact that it had been offered to an idol. And so there would be those who would say, I, I just can't eat meat. If all the meat in this town is offered to idols, then I'm not going to eat it. I guess I'll be a vegetarian. You say, would they really do that? Yes, they would. Remember the book of Daniel? Daniel and many of these young Jewish men were taken away as captives to the city of Babylon, and there was set before them a spread like you and I could never have imagined. But probably many of those meats were also unclean, sacrificed to idols. And Daniel and his three friends, we know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They took an oath and said, we're not going to eat of the king's delicacies. We're not going to partake. We'll only partake of vegetables. It was culturally normative for a Jewish mind. Now, we recognize Daniel the prophet was a holy man of God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these were good guys as it relates to their observance of things of God. But in their minds and hearts, they could not allow themselves to partake. And so Paul says here in verse 2, one believes that he may, meet, may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. 
Now, it's very interesting that Paul classifies this standard that a person has set over themselves as being a weakness in the faith. Because we might think that the person who has some sort of standard that they seek to observe for righteousness in their life, we might think that seems to be a very strong and noble and admirable thing. And yet Paul says, one believes that he may, may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Well, what's Paul's teaching on this point? Let not him who eats, the one who says it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another man's servant? For to his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. What we see here in this passage is that different cultures practice their Christian faith in different ways. Their practices are not necessarily wrong, they're just different. They're just different. How many of you have ever visited another Christian church and when you walk into the door you go, well, this isn't my church. (laughs) You start to look around, you go, oh, I really don't like the way that they did that. Oh goodness, I didn't really like the way that they said that prayer. What, we're gonna stand up now and oh, we're gonna kneel? How many of you have been in another Christian church and yet it's a Christian church, they believe in God and yet culturally it's different? You go, this is different. If you ever have the opportunity to travel with us to China or to travel with us to Africa, you're gonna see some amazing differences in the practice of the faith and yet these brothers and sisters that you fellowship with, they love God, but you look around and you go, well, that's a little bit different. It's culturally, traditionally different. Is it biblically wrong? No, it's just different. It's just different. Gentile Christians entering their faith, coming out of a pagan Roman world that practices things, practice things like buying cheaper meats, sacrifice to idols, they, they didn't see an issue with this thing in the faith, the Christians that came out of a Jewish background, they did. They could not eat those things, did not want to eat those things. The believer that walks in liberty as it relates to cultural or non-essential teachings is not to look down upon the other Christian with scorn, upon that individual who refuses to eat because of conscience. Moreover, the one that has established some religious standard in their life, not necessarily based on what the scripture says, is not to judge the person who does not observe that standard. Not to judge them. This is the biblical principle that Paul is giving here. There's flexibility for traditional, cultural values within the body of Christ There are certain things that one set of Christians value and hold as important that may not have a direct spiritual or scriptural relationship, and another group of believers say, well, it's just no big deal. We just don't observe that. But the one is not to despise the other, and this one's not to judge. This one is saying, well, that's unspiritual. Why? Well, see, here's the problem when we set up these non-scriptural standards that we hold other people to. It makes it very easy to live a fake spirituality. How so? Well, there have been some who say, well, you know, it would be unrighteous to drink, unrighteous to smoke, unrighteous to chew or to run with those who do. 
And so there have been some within that context who say, say, well, I don't drink, and I don't smoke, and I don't chew, and I don't run with those who do, and so I am righteous, and yet they've not even accepted Jesus. There's a wrong standard of righteousness. They, they follow what their religious practice says is righteous. They follow a set of do's and don'ts, and yet they're not even a believer. Or they're living in open sin, living in an adulterous relationship, and saying, well, at least I don't drink and smoke, so I'm righteous. You see the danger? Well, Paul says here, let him who eats not despise him who does not, let not him who does not eat judge the one who does, for, notice this, God has received both. God has received both. Maybe hard for us to recognize, but those who believe in Jesus put their faith in God for salvation that are a part of that church down the road, God's received them just in the same way he's received us. What we're told here is that God does not care. It does not bother God one whit whether or not one eats that meat sacrificed to an idol or another doesn't. There's no spiritual value to it whatsoever. And yet oftentimes we make a big deal about it. If God has received us, then the teaching here is that we should receive one another, even if our practice of faith is slightly different than that person's practice of faith. And then he says, who are you to judge? Who are you to judge? Judging another as it relates to certain things that are not clearly, explicitly stated in the scriptures is frivolous and petty. Well, Paul gives us a second example. Look at verse 5. Romans 14, verse 5. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord. He who gives God, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself, for if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Paul says, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Paul was willing to leave this up to conscience, the conscience of the individual, but whatever we do, we must be able to do it as to the Lord. Whether we eat or drink, we do all to the glory of the Lord, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I believe at verse 31. Whatever we do, can we do what we're doing unto the glory of God? Of course, not using our conscience as an excuse for obviously sinful behavior. So we recognize Paul, again, I got to say it, Paul is speaking about those areas in the middle, those gray matters in the Christian faith where we don't have a clear scriptural passage to point to that says yes or no. Ultimately, you and I stand before the Lord. We don't stand before one another. We stand before the Lord. He is judge. Look at verse 10. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? Notice that Paul says, your brother. These people who hold different values, different traditional views, they're still your brother in Christ. Why do you judge your brother or hold contempt for your brother? For we shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, 
As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve to do this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. If it is true that God is the judge, then why do we judge or show contempt upon another? We were exhorted in the last section there in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, that we're to love one another. And if we are to love one another, then we're exhorted here to no longer judge one another. Why should we not judge one another? Well, Paul says, because God alone is the judge. He alone is the judge. Furthermore, we all shall stand before him for judgment one day. So God is the judge, and it is certain that he will take care of all these issues that we think he should take care of that. He will one day take care of that. So if it is true that God is the judge, and one day he, we will stand before him for judgment, the obvious application is we should be more concerned about ourselves than what the other person down the street is doing. But boy, it's so much more fun to point our finger at other people. So much more, well, it just diverts the attention away from us. Because our, sin our sins look much worse in other people's lives. Well, Paul says, since we're not to judge one another, because God is the judge and one day we will stand before him, therefore, how should we apply this? The application is given to us in verse 13. But rather, resolve to do this. This is what we should do. If we're not supposed to judge, then we are supposed to do this, that we not put a stumbling block or cause to fall before another person. Now, this teaching that Paul is giving here to not put a stumbling block is very, very specific. The idea is that you and I should never do anything that might cause another individual to stumble into sin or be caused to fall away from their faith in Christ. Paul is not saying here that, you know, we're never going to do anything or should never do anything that might bother someone. Because on every, every single day, we do things that might bother someone. But the word here is very specific, that we not cause them to fall away from the Lord. Paul continues, verse 14, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. How many of you have traveled to Israel before? Lift your hand up high. All our Israel travelers. Okay, you can put them down. Now, in Israel, because of the dietary restrictions of the Jews, you can't buy a cheeseburger. Gosh, that's terrible. No in and out double-double animal style. Terrible. Now, I know that there's nothing unclean about an in and out double-double. Now, I'm not talking about the caloric intake. I'm not talking about the cholesterol value. I'm saying there's nothing spiritually or morally unclean about the in and out double-double animal style. It's just good. <laughs> Did you know that this piece of property you're sitting on right now was supposed to be an in and out Now, thank God they got one down the street, but we got the property. Anyways, <clears throat> this would have been like the cash register right here. <laughs> There's nothing morally or spiritually unclean about the in and out double-double. However, you can't eat that in Israel. There is no in and out there in Israel, and if there was, they wouldn't have cheeseburgers. Why? Well, because they say that the, the meat and the cheese, the dairy product, and I know American cheese has very little dairy value in it, but still, you cannot mix this meat and this dairy because the dietary restrictions and the Levit Levitical rites. 
Now, I know that there's nothing unclean about that. However, if there is someone who perhaps grew up their entire life under that restriction and they become a Christian and to them they say it's unclean for that individual, it is unclean. Now let me actually put this into something that's a little bit more serious. Maybe there's a person within the church that they came out of an existence, out of a lifestyle where they were totally consumed by alcohol and continual drunkenness. And they've come to faith to put their faith in Jesus Christ and they've renounced those things and set them aside. And you may know, as another person in the body of Christ, that drinking alcohol is not sin, drunkenness is. But for that person who's laid it aside and said, for me, it is is unclean. For that individual, it is unclean. For that individual, it would be sin to consume. Verse 15, yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Underline those words, no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. I know that there's nothing wrong with eating that in and out double-double cheeseburger animal style. But if that causes my brother in Christ to stumble, I know that drinking alcohol is not sin, but drunkenness is. If I know that that causes my brother to stumble, I'm definitely not gonna do so openly in front of them so as to destroy them with whatever it is that I deem to be a liberty for me in Christ. And if I do, then I'm no longer walking in love. Remember what we saw, chapter 13, verse 8? Owe no one anything except to love one another. And love, we were told in that same passage, does no harm to their neighbor. Therefore, if I know that this might cause my brother to stumble, then walking in love, I do away with it. Verse 16, therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. Do not let your good be spoken of as evil. What does this mean? Well, Christ Jesus has made us free. That's a good thing. He's given us liberty. But if I use my liberty to tear someone down, then that good thing I have in Christ becomes evil. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved to men. Too often we emphasize the wrong things in the church. In God's kingdom, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit are of value. These are the things that give us great acceptance before God. We're not made to be accepted before God because we do or don't eat cheeseburgers. We are acceptable before God because of righteousness, not our own righteousness, but God's imputed righteousness to us and peace that he has given to us through salvation, which results in joy through the presence of the Holy Spirit. These things are what make us acceptable to God, not whether or not you worship on the Sabbath day or worship on a Sunday. Those are not of value to God. So much more of value to God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. While churches grant or withdraw membership based upon the observance of dietary rights and observing certain days at certain times, God's kingdom does not grant access based on those things. Some churches have a really hard time with the church celebrating Easter or Christmas or having a Christmas tree. Do you know that God doesn't care whether or not you have a Christmas tree? 
Now, if you bow down to that Christmas tree and offer a sacrifice to it, that's idolatry, and that's expressly spoken of against in the scripture. But having a Christmas tree does not make you more righteous or less righteous than the person who doesn't. You might be happier, I don't know. (laughs) Therefore, verse 19, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which we may edify one another. Let's pursue the things that are of value to God. You see the church in Corinth, they were split over Sabbath worship or the Lord's Day worship. They were split over the observance of certain dietary restrictions, over the observance of certain holidays and days. They were split over those things. And Paul's exhortation to the church at Corinth, Paul's exhortation to the church at Rome and to us 2,000 years later would be, listen, pursue those things that are important to God. and to building up one another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for a man who eats with offense. If it causes someone else to stumble, even though you have liberty in Christ to do it, it now has become sin for you. Even though having it or partaking it is not sin, if it causes another person to stumble, now it is. Verse 21. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which a brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. If I know that it might weaken, stumble, or offend another person, then Paul says, willingly lay it aside and pursue those things that are of importance to God. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Do you have faith? You believe in God? Have it to yourself before God. Now notice this. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. What does this mean? Well, imagine the scenario. You're walking with God by faith. You know his word. You're mature in the understanding of what the scriptures say. But as you walk with God, God impresses you by his Holy Spirit and says to you, I don't want you to eat in and out double-doubles animal style. And you say, but God, they're okay. And he says, but I'm impressing upon you that I don't want for you to partake of those. And you fight with the Lord. You say, but I like them. And it's okay. There's nothing in the Bible that says I can't have it. And yet you go after church today and you drive down the freeway and you get off at In-N-Out. As you're walking through the door, I guarantee you there's going to be this still small voice saying, but I said I don't. And you go, oh, but I, but I want it. But yet I don't want it. And now, happy is he, Paul says, Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. You're approving of it. You're saying, the Bible doesn't disprove it. It doesn't say that it's wrong, and yet you're condemned over it in your heart. Happy is the person who says, well, I'm just going to give it up. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, even though the thing he's partaking of is not wrong. He who doubts is condemned if he eats. He's judged by himself and by the Spirit of God in him because he does not eat from faith. He's not able to do so faithfully to the Lord, walking in faithfulness to him. For whatever is not from faith is sin. If you cannot do what you're doing, if God was standing there right next to you, even though there's not an explicit declaration in the scriptures, thou shalt not, if you would feel uncomfortable if God was standing right there, and he is, then give it up. Let it go. Now, don't apply that standard to other people and say, you know, you shouldn't eat in and out double-doubles. 
Don't take that and say, that's the standard of righteousness. Before you and the Lord, as you walk by faith, it is. But not the standard for another. How do we live in these gray areas? Well, we walk by faith. With the Spirit of God residing in us. Not judging another, but Lord, help me to judge by your direction what is right. Amen? Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? Father, thank you for your word. Lord, help us to apply these things. It's one thing to know it, it's another to live it. Lord, I thank you that the things that are acceptable to you, the things that give us access and open door to your kingdom, It's not about eating or drinking or not eating or not drinking, but it has to do with righteousness. It has to do with putting our faith in you for righteousness. And that through your righteousness, we receive your peace, peace with you and peace with one another and joy by the abiding presence of your Holy Spirit. Lord, it may be that as we stand here today, there are some in this room that have not accepted your righteousness. They've been trying to be religious. They've been trying to do away with certain good or bad things in their lives thinking that makes them righteous. But Lord, I pray that your word, as we've looked at it this morning, would open their eyes to see that righteousness only comes by you giving it to us. And that through your righteousness, we can have peace and joy by the abiding presence of your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to serve you in these things, knowing that it's these things that make us accepted to you.